let us pray. O oh God, who knowest us to be set in the midst of so many and great dangers, that by reason of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant to us such strength and protection as may support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Tauranga, the oh, evening of God, April the 28th, 1864. And governor of all in the vicarage, a dozen officers of Her Majesty Queen Victoria's Imperial Forces kneel in prayer. The Archdeacon of Tauranga asks for courage and guidance for the British troops in battle, a battle which is only hours away. From the hands of our enemies. Abate their pride, assuage their malice, and confound their devices, that we, being armed with thy defence, may be preserved evermore from all perils, to glorify thee who art the only giver of all victory. Tohu, a e paiana. Tera e fati te ngaru ki rungo nga e te rangi. Me te huhuka haere wainga nui In the enemy stockade three miles inland, already under fire from the British artillery, a tohunga fortifies the Māori warriors with traditional rites and recites the karakias for victory. Ke tu tera e maunga nui e huhuka atura te ngaru ki tōna take. I have seen the omens and I am satisfied. The wave will break over Nyatarang. The white wave will break around us. Two, thou God of war, assist us. Let our people stand like rock. Yes, let us stand like Maunganui when the white wave curls at its base. I have read the omens in Morning Star. I have read them in mist. I have seen a falling star plunge into the sea. And I am satisfied. The Maori force would appear to be in greater need of God's assistance than the Pakeha. They're outnumbered almost ten to one. The Nai Te Rangi are entrenched in a network of rifle pits and covered ways, protected by earthworks and palisades. But this will surely be so much chaff before the thundering wind of the Imperial Heavy Artillery. And how can Tomahawk, Flintlock and Fowling Piece match revolver, Enfield rifle and bayonet? Spectrum presents And All the Queens Met, a recreation of the battle fought at Gate Par, Tauranga in 1864 and its aftermath. The 20 years of peace and prosperity which nourished the tribes of Tauranga has been shattered. In January 1864, Governor Gray sent a punitive expedition to Tauranga to suppress rebellion in the Bay of Plenty. Several settlers and missionaries there advised against the move, pleading that the majority of natives there were untainted by the King movement and were not supporters of the rebel Waikato tribes. By April, the Waikato had fallen after Rewi Maniopoto's heroic stand at Orokau had ended in defeat. This released the Imperial Commander-in-Chief, General Cameron, to take over all command of the Tauranga force, consisting of the 68th and 43rd Light Infantry 
and naval brigades. But while the British poured in men and big guns, the natives had not been idle. They decided to make their stand at Wauku, some ten miles inland from the Imperial forces. Having rebuilt and fortified an old power there, the rebels prepared eight miles of road leading to it so as to lessen the fatigue of the Queen's soldiers. The chief, Rawiri Puhirake, then dispatched a formal message notifying the Imperial commander and accepting the ordeal of combat. One of the rebel warriors, Hori Natai, recalled these events. We drew up a challenge in the form of a letter to the British general inviting him to meet us and fight it out. This letter was sent by a herald to the Pākehā camp at Te Papa, and we waited a reply. All was excitement. The clansmen were busy preparing for the fray, making cartridges, sharpening tomahawks, cleaning guns, getting food supplies and so forth. Martial councils were held and the haka kamate took place daily to put our young men in form and to arouse their warlike spirits. The letter also contained a set of solemn rules for the conduct of the battle, drawn up by a mission-trained teacher, Henare Taratoa. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. To the colonel, friend, salutations to you. The end of that, friend. Do you give heed to our laws for regulating the fight? Rule one. If wounded or captured whole, and butt of musket or hilt of sword be turned to me, he will be saved. Rule two. If any Pagaya, being a soldier by name, shall be travelling unarmed and meet me, he will be captured and handed over to the direction of the law. Rule three. The soldier who flees, being carried away by his fears, and goes to the house of the priest, even though carrying arms, will be saved. I will not go there. Rule four. The unarmed Pagihas, women and children, will be spared. The end. These are binding laws for Tauronga. But the British military were unmoved by the challenge. They were in no hurry. Their forces and supplies were as yet incomplete, and General Cameron was still in the Waikato. For some time we waited for a reply to our challenges, but none came. We considered it very discourteous of the English that they did not even acknowledge that letter. We could not understand them making no move of any sort. The Maoris then sent a verbal message, saying that as their position in land was evidently too far away for the Imperial troops to march, the natives proposed to take up a position nearer Te Papa. They selected Pukehinehine Ridge, a neck of land 300 yards wide, flanked by swamps and only three miles inland from the Pakiha camp. The missionaries had built a high bank and a deep ditch across the ridge to mark the extent of their land. Entry was by a gate, hence the name Gate Pa. The position was strategic, but the defences had to be built from scratch. Our women were with us, working as hard as the men, carrying back loads of material for the defences and food for the warriors. We sent them away to safety before the fighting began. We were very short of wood for the stockade, so next night a number of us went down towards the township, quite close to the soldiers' quarters, and pulled down Mr. Clark's fence and collected all the timber we could. We also demolished a stockyard. 
With the material so obtained, we built a light low fence enclosing the two redoubts. Besides the fence were two parapets, ditches and rifle pits, and within the redoubt, shelters were dug for the protection of the garrison. Men went to Pukireia to collect timber to roof over our rifle pits and covered ways. Ensign Nicol of the 43rd Regiment observed the finished par in his diary. This par looks from the outside a most insignificant place. The face of it is about 80 yards long. First comes a strong palisading, then a ditch, then a high rampart. On each flank there are rifle pits running down for about 200 yards. On the left there is a smaller par built. There's a tall flagstaff in the rear, and from it they fly their war flag with a cross, crescent and star design. On April the 21st, General Cameron and staff arrived by HMS Esk, and on the 26th, 600 sailors and marines were disembarked from HMS Miranda, Curacao, Esk and Harrier. A 110-pounder and two 40-pounder Armstrong guns from the Esk, with 14 other guns, landed previously, were hauled out by 800 troops to within easy distance of gate power. These were emplaced on Pukaraya, or Green Hill, and other points of advantage. Light defences were erected around the guns, which were carefully blinded by newly cut fern. The gate power defenders numbered no more than 250 warriors. General Cameron now had at his disposal a total force of 2,000. On the afternoon of the 28th of April, Cameron began moving his troops into position. Suddenly, as our eyes ranged over the country towards the Papa, we saw unusual activity in the soldiers' camp. The warriors of the Queen, soldiers and sailors, were marshaled in array of battle, and then they advanced towards us. It was an army that marched against our fort, a great body of infantry and a number of cannon. Ah, no, no. the hour was at hand. The boy hippie, a cool, brave man, called out to us from his post on the parapet. Eat well, old friends. Eat leisurely. Make one more hearty meal. I will watch here and give you timely warning. When we gazed on these soldiers, how could we eat? Grandly did they march. Strode they toward us as one man, with measured, resounding footsteps, their bright bayonets flashing in the sun, and their great guns rumbling along. Those terrible guns, which we thought would soon blow our frail defences into the air. Ehoa. When we gazed on those sons of thunder, launched forward in their might, can you wonder that the cooked potatoes seem to have lost their sweetness, and that many a one of us forgot his hunger? The British column came to within five or six hundred yards of our front. Then most of the soldiers turned to the right onto Pukereia Hill, where they mounted their guns and pitched tents. Cameron then launched a sham attack, which kept the defenders busy, while he deployed a large force on their left flank. Under cover of darkness, the 68th took up positions at the rear, 
The British were now on the Pa's left flank, in front and in the rear. Sporadic shelling had accompanied the sham attack, but at daybreak on the 29th, the bombardment began in earnest. Armstrongs, howitzers and mortars, 18 pieces in all, the finest ordnance of the day. An awful fire was concentrated on our redoubt. Our fences and frail parapets soon crumbled away. Splinters and earth were continually flying through the air. We were smothered with dirt thrown up by the exploding shells. And this, the rain which had set in, soon turned into mud. We had two men of prayer in our camp, our Tuhunga. One was a Christian minister named Dihaka, who fortified us with the rites of the Pākehā religion. The other, a heathen priest, one Tewana, who performed the war rites of our forefathers and recited the olden time karakia for victory in the fight. So we were making things right with both sides, the Christian god and the artua of the mark. It was all tinotika, very correct. Our Christian Tonga, Ihaka, clad in a white surplice, was standing up in a very conspicuous position, invoking a blessing. Just as he uttered the words, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and love of... A shell from one of the big guns struck him in the waist, and bursting scattered his body all over the place. Oh, what a sight. A few hours later, our other Tohum was killed in precisely similar manner. Tewano was standing up in an elevated position, exhorting us and reciting old incantations when a cannon shot struck him, and he parted from us. The day began early, but more mundanely for the Pākehā soldiers. Ensign Nicol of the 43rd recalled, We paraded before daylight this morning. As I was dressing, I thought I should never get on my boots. It was very unpleasant standing still in the rain, which was falling fast. After an hour and a half, we walked up to the ridge of the hill to see what was going on. The Armstrongs were in a small battery to our right, with the howitzers and the ten-inch mortars to our left. All the guns were within 600 yards of the par. The big 110-pounder did not make so much noise as I had expected, and instead of blowing up the par at the first shot as they said it would, it did hardly any damage the whole day through. They fired a hundred rounds from it. One reason why it did not do better was because they made such bad shots. Some shots burst at the muzzle, others did not burst at all, and I saw a few burst a good mile beyond the target greatly to the inconvenience of the 68th, who were behind the par. The best shooting by far was from the mortars and howitzers, and I believe they made the breaches. For ten hours, the British pounded the stockade. Our position now seemed desperate. All our defences above ground had been demolished and levelled flat while... 
As we took shelter in our trenches, we were all more or less covered with mud and drenched with the rain. Our leaders showed valiant front, directing our affairs with cool courage. They ordered us not to utter a word or fire a shot till the proper time came for the order. At 4 p.m., the assaulting column of 150 men of the 43rd under Colonel Booth and the same number of the Naval Brigade led by Commander Hay, HMS Harrier, formed up where the contour of the ground sheltered them from the fire of the power. 170 men marched to the right under cover of batteries and lay concealed in the fern to keep down the enemy's fire. Later, they would follow the stormers into the breach. 300 men of the 43rd, together with seamen and marines under Captain Hamilton, HMS Esk, comprised the reserve, which was also to follow into the works. The total assault force, including reserves, numbered almost 800. At last, Booth waved his sword and gave the word, and we got up and went at the place in great style. We were met by very sharp fire, both in our front and on our right, and the bullets whistled about our heads. The breach was very easy to get through, but when we got inside, we were brought up by the rifle pits. Inside, the fire was tremendously hot, and the men were falling fast. The worst was that we could not see the Maoris as they were in pits covered over with flax and tea trees, through the rules of which they put their rifles and fired at us at about a distance of three yards. Mian fell thick and fast. Tomahawk clashed on cutlass and bayonet. Tupara. Our double-barrel fouling pieces met rifle and pistol. Skulls were cloven. Maoris were bayoneted. Naitarangi parted. Our hatchet bit deep into white heads and shoulders. The place was soon full of dying and dead men. Pākehā and Maori. We in the eastern position of the pa stood firm. It was terrible work. I ran on over the top of the pits until I fell into one, and here I found young Glover pulling his poor brother out of another pit. Captain Hay of the Harrier was lying at the bottom very badly wounded, and also another naval officer, Henry Clark, was sitting with a very bad wound in his mouth. Poor young Peter Glover kept on calling out, Will no one help my brother? Clark and I then lifted Bob Glover up, but we saw it was no good as he was quite dead from an awful wound in his forehead from which his brains were hanging out. A little way behind me, I saw Private Warburton lying on his back and about three yards away, Sergeant Major Vance lay on his face. The men were firing just behind me and the Maoris firing back just in front of me. The men, when they got this far, seemed quite paralysed and neither moved nor loaded but kept looking about them. All of a sudden, I heard a cheer, and on looking round, I saw Hamilton of the S leading up the reserves. He ran past me and stopped about two yards in front. He then turned round and said, Come on, men, follow me. The minute he said that, he was shot dead by a bullet in his head. Ah. 
Soon after this, I was looking round to see why the men were not coming on, when suddenly I felt as if something had taken off the top of my head, and I fell against the side of the pit. On putting my hand to the top of my head, I felt it was one mass of blood, and so I thought I must be wounded. Young Peter Glover told me it was only a slight wound, so I put my handkerchief inside my cap and felt pretty well. Whilst I was standing here, I saw a lot of Maoris coming towards us across the open at the back of the par. If only I had a rifle, I could have knocked some of them over beautifully. I had not even a revolver as I'd lent it to Peter Glover. I was close to our battery and I began to feel awfully weak and very thirsty. Some of the officers persuaded me to go home to the camp. Such was my first day under fire. A nice thing to begin one's service with a repulse and a knock on the head, for there is no mistake about it being a repulse. A repulse for several reasons. The rain-soaked Maori earthworks had absorbed much of the bombardment, leaving the bulk of the pits and covered ways with their defendants untouched. The assault itself had been launched in the failing afternoon light. When the first wave failed to take the power, it was too dark to bring up the reserves. It was curious, too, that many of the troops had not eaten for ten hours since before dawn. And in retrospect, it seems unnecessary to have combined army and naval forces for the assault when the 43rd had sufficient men to carry out the attack alone. In his dispatch to Governor Gray, General Cameron describes the battle in detail, but spends only one brief paragraph analysing its failure. This repulse I am at a loss to explain, otherwise than by attributing it to the confusion created among the men by the intricate nature of the interior defences and the sudden fall of so many of their officers. The Pākehā losses were severe. In all, 111 of all ranks were killed or wounded. The Māori losses were no more than 40. The vicarage overflowed with dead and dying. Hospital facilities were hopelessly inadequate. Private Warburton, gunshot, right forearm, severe, died April 29. Private James Audley, tomahawk, head, dangerous, died April 30. Lieutenant Colonel Booth, gunshot, abdomen, dangerous, died April 30. But all the rebels had earned was a breathing space. It could only be a matter of time before the Maori force was crushed beneath the superior weight of their foe. The Pa defenders, however, had no intention of awaiting daylight and facing the inevitable. In the night we collected arms, accoutrements and ammunition from the British dead. Then recognizing that our defenses no longer existed, we abandoned the ruined power under cover of darkness, retiring in good order and spirits. We crept quietly through the lines of the 68th at the rear. The soldiers kept firing on us, but none of us were killed. Only a few wounded. I believe that some of the soldiers were accidentally killed by their own comrades. We retired to Waikupa and then dispersed to our various stations along the edge of the forest. Next morning, the British troops and the inevitable journalist entered a deserted pa to find that one of their fears at least had not been realised. No one expected it or could have believed that the exultant rebels would refrain from satiating their passion for revenge by mutilating the helpless bodies, but thank God it was not so. Even the rings, watches, money, trinkets and clothing, etc. of our dead were untouched. 
This was the finest action of the enemy through the struggle. They had previously determined on a chivalrous and honourable method of carrying on the war, and most scrupulously observed it. We adhered strictly to the terms of the battle covenant and harmed not the wounded nor interfered with the bodies of the dead. The British colonel, Booth, fell mortally wounded just inside the gateway, and there he lay all night. In the hours of darkness his voice could be heard calling for water. One of our people went out and got some and administered to his wants. Another wounded officer left behind after his men had retreated dropped his sword a little distance away. A Maori picked it up and went to restore it to the officer. The Pākehā squared himself up as well as he could to meet his death blow. But to his surprise, the Maori turned the hilt towards the officer and returned his weapon. Colonel Bull Samaritan was a woman, Hene Te Kiri Karamu, a battle-seasoned half-caste who had fought alongside her brother in several Waikato campaigns. She afterwards recalled, We were in the firing trench when I heard the wounded lying in our lines calling for water. When I heard these cries, I could not resist them. The sight of the foe with their lifeblood flowing seemed to elate some of our warriors, but I felt a great pity for them. And I remembered also the rule we had made, that if any person asked for a service to be performed, it must not be refused. Bullets flew around us, but I rose from the trench, slung my gun, and fetched water from our cooking place in an iron nail can. It was so heavy I had to spill half of it before I could carry it to the soldiers. The officer Booth was nearest me. I took his head on my knees and said, Here's water. He said, God bless you, and drank the water scooped in my hand. I gave water to three other soldiers the same way, then I left the nail can where it would not spill, and ran back to the trench. By late June, the rebels had regrouped and were busy entrenching at Teranga, about six miles inland. The Imperial troops thirsted for battle. The 43rd had a reputation to regain, and the 68th a name to sustain. The Maoris were caught unprepared. The engagement was over in minutes, leaving the trenches choked with dead. Pakiha casualties, 13. Maoris, 150. The very flower of Ngaitirangi and associated tribes had fallen with their faces to the invader, in full accord with their proud ancestral boast. Me matea ho If I die, let it be to die for the land. Twinkling unheeded is that star in the heavens. It is mere mere at which I oft do glance. Low hung is Corpu, the morning star. Would it were my love returning. My noble one, alas, has fallen from my arms. I let him go in the dusk of eventide to saunter forth abroad from Tatahu before setting forth on the trail of war. There to stand in the forefront as a leader and to leap forth boldly with the many of Atitahu. Thus oft exposed you were to the demon's fire with its flaming powder from a distant land. 
unending is my sorrow. Away, this pain, this grief. You were slashed about by a foreign blade, and your body's essence floated upon Kaituna. You are to be taken back to the lonely strand outside of Tauranga, where your sons will place you gently amidship of the canoe, there to gaze upon your countenance so fine, your once glowing face emplumed with Toroa from the sea. A rare Toroa it was from the summit of Karewa yonder. <laughs> <laughs>